Hello and welcome to Freelance Corner. I'm Ben and this is Orla. Today we're speaking to Jamie Gill, an award-winning freelancer who strives to make a social impact and has created campaigns for global organisations including UNICEF, startups and NGOs. He's also the winner of the Outstanding Freelancer Award presented by Ipsy. In this episode, he'll be speaking to us about his journey into freelancing, his work in Cambodia and the importance of awards like the Ipsy Freelancer Awards. Hi, Jamie. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Hi, everyone. Yeah, great to be here. Hi, Jamie. Obviously, in that intro, there's a lot of things you've done. It'd be great for our listeners to understand how you got into freelancing and what your journey's been like so far. From the very start of my career, even as I was working in communications in um, a very commercial PR agency, I loved to write. Um, That was one of the reasons why I was working in communications anyway. So I did some music journalism and travel journalism on the side. My journey from there, so I worked in commercial PR for a long time. And then at around the age of 30, I started to work for charities in the UK, quite large charities, working for them as a press manager and a public affairs manager, which I found very fulfilling. And then I moved to Cambodia when I was about 36. I actually took a gap year, um, a very late gap year, travelled around the world and came to Cambodia and absolutely loved the country. I could see that there were many challenges here and I thought that some of my skills could hopefully do something to contribute to overcoming some of those challenges. But it wasn't a country which was defined by the challenges it faced, whether that was the genocide it went through 40 years ago all the challenges of being a developing country now. It was actually a very hopeful, very optimistic country, um, one which was embracing lots of opportunities. And that also created lots of opportunities for me, frankly. So I began working here and for quite a long time, I worked in-house for some large independent NGOs. And then COVID hit and that kind of changed a lot of things. One of the things I'd been doing was a little bit of voluntary work for some smaller NGOs, which didn't have the funding to hire in a communications expert. And when COVID came, it was really obvious that they needed a lot more help. One of the NGOs um, is called Farpenler Selpak, and they are an education and arts and culture NGO. And most of their income comes from ticket sales. But their circuses had to close because of COVID. So Almost all of their income was wiped out. And a couple of other NGOs, which I had a lot of connections with, were also in deep trouble with funding. And because I was in a full-time job at the time, I just didn't have enough time to be able to support them. So I took the decision, which was quite difficult and quite risky, I suppose, in retrospect, to try going freelance for the primary reason that it would give me flexibility in that I could hopefully earn enough income to survive through larger commercial clients and larger NGOs and development agencies, whilst also having the flexibility to provide free or very low-cost services to these smaller NGOs. And it was quite scary, but luckily it did pay off. So I'm uh, very glad that I took that decision and very glad at all of the opportunities it created. That sounds really brave. I mean, I can't imagine going to another country and set up a freelancing career. I don't know about yeah. you, Ola, but... Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Especially in a pandemic, you know, that is su- like super brave. And also, I think it's really commendable that you've taken the knowledge that you've acquired over your years in, you know, commercial 
comms and you've applied it to supporting smaller charities, NGOs, organisations that really need that help with their communications. Well, that's really kind of you to say. It was a bit nerve-wracking at the time, but I did have the safety net of having worked in Cambodia a lot for six years, having met a lot of people, and knowing that there were people who had seen my work and seen the results I could get and were likely to um, provide me some business. So I knew I wasn't going to starve. I just didn't know if I was going to particularly thrive. And to be fair, that did take a while to get to the point where I would say it did begin to thrive. And what do you think are the key kind of elements that have, you know, propelled you to thrive? Why do you think that is? Wow, that's very hard to answer without boasting or sounding arrogant. <laughs> okay. Um, well, to be honest, let me say one thing. Boasting is actually a really important quality in a freelancer, and it's very hard for a lot of people to do. But you aren't hiding behind an organisation which can go out and brag without any embarrassment about its achievements. You're having to do that for yourself. And that's a really hard thing to overcome, the fear of boasting about yourself. I guess the fact that I had always worked in promotion and uh, marketing and PR gave me a little bit of an advantage in that I knew that it was just really important to get out there and say what you're good at. So one of the things that helped me was just having an awareness of what my skills were and being able to promote them without blushing too much. So that was one part of what helped me. Another key thing which really got me going was using Upwork. And I think that platforms like that have certainly changed the game when it comes to being able to freelance from very different parts of the world. They're very hard to break into, and I wouldn't ever underestimate that for anybody. I had 20 years of experience. I'd worked for some very big brands, but still getting started on Upwork and gaining the feedback that you need to win business was extremely hard. And I had to play it very tactically. So initially, I was going for incredibly small jobs um, just to build up my reputation and my ranking. And, and that was actually quite fun. I remember helping one South Korean student to proofread his CV, which was like a 20-minute job for $5. But it was nice. It was, it, was, it was good to help him, and it helped me to gain some ranking. So at that stage... One bit of advice I'd say to others is that you may have to accept some jobs which perhaps aren't paying you all that you're worth just to get started. And then as you build your reputation, as you build your credibility and your rankings, then you can start to charge more in line with what you're worth. I just think it crosses my mind as um, obviously a lot of your work has not been in the UK in recent years. Has there been any big cultural differences with being a freelancer in Cambodia compared to, you know, maybe your early days doing some freelance journalism in the UK? Like, is there any sort of big ways in that it's it's different and what is expected of you? I mean, the most obvious way in which working as a freelancer in two different countries is different is the bureaucracy and the administration of it. Even though I didn't earn a lot of my income through freelancing, I remember spending days grappling with the HMRC forms for freelancers back in the UK. And Cambodia has its own bureaucracy. So wherever you are, you do have to get to grips with what the local requirements are. 
And that's the same if you're just starting out in freelancing in the UK. Get very familiar fast with how the tax system works, whether that be what you can claim back and when your deadlines are. And that's also the same in a different country. So that's the really kind of practical and prosaic answer to that question. Culturally, although I was based in Cambodia, a lot of the work I did on Upwork was actually international. So to give a few examples, I was working with one guy selling stylish blue light blocking sunglasses in Poland. I was working with a very cool startup guy in San Francisco. I was working with some jewelry makers in Australia, several people in the UK. So I had to get used to lots of different cultural differences and really down to the really boring level of uh, understanding the difference between American spelling and Australian spelling and British spelling, which are all different. But it sounds a little bit um, blasé, but the most important thing was to always keep a high quality of work. So never think that perhaps because maybe a country is a smaller country, isn't as important on the geopolitical stage or isn't considered to be as advanced in terms of its economy, never drop your standards according to that. Always make sure that you're delivering the best possible work, no matter where the client is based. I think that's a, I think that's a good point. I think uh, never let your standards slip. Over the matter who what your client or where they're from, I think that's something which a lot of our listeners can sort of take to heart. Um, I think getting more into sort of the work you're doing now, is there any advice you'd give to someone who wants to get into humanitarian work and also work abroad as well? I definitely highly recommend that people should pursue humanitarian work if that's something which interests them. But it is quite challenging and it does take time to get into, especially if you want to earn a good income through it. You may have to be prepared to do some volunteering at the start because so many people want to do humanitarian work or work for charities or NGOs. You do need to do something which puts you out ahead of the competition. And I think that being prepared to volunteer and to use some of your skills um, on that basis will really help you. Before I started my work in the charity sector back in the UK, I'd already volunteered as a trustee and as an advisor on a smaller charity. And I think that really helped me when I decided to move full-time and in-house. It's definitely very fulfilling work. It's very varied, but some people, I think, make the mistake of thinking that the uh, humanitarian or the charitable sector isn't as fast-paced or as advanced as the private sector. And that can be true in some cases, but it's often not. Often, it's very, very high-paced. It's extremely competitive. And with the economic troubles I think we're likely to face over the coming years, it's going to be even more competitive with nonprofits struggling to raise funds. So it's very, very dynamic work. The converse of that is that if you do have really strong and important skills from the private sector, they're going to be extremely valuable in the nonprofit sector as well. You just got me thinking about the kind of concept around the charity sector being not as fast paced as it actually is. Where do you think that notion kind of comes from? I mean, I can certainly say that I had heard this before I moved into the sector. I think it may largely come from agencies of the kind which I used to work in, 
where they pride themselves on juggling multiple clients and having to stay up to date with all of the latest technology. And I think actually they generally think that in-house jobs are a bit more slow paced. And I think that definitely there is a perception that the charity sector is just a little bit more old fashioned and that perhaps people go into it and get jobs because they are just caring people rather than really talented and skilled people. And I'm afraid to say that's not the case. Um, in fact, the charity sector can be just as ruthless and focused on skills and productivity and results as any private sector business. I'd essentially always wanted to travel, but never got the chance until I was in my 30s. And I finally decided just to take the plunge. So I spent about a year and a half traveling the world. I traveled from England to Australia without flying, and it was a huge adventure. But I felt a bit guilty about just having this huge holiday. So I spent two months in Cambodia volunteering, and it was just life-changing for me. I had never felt the power of the impact of the work I was doing as clearly as I did in Cambodia. And that's why when I finished my travels, I came back. What I would say is that you do need to do your research. I would suggest that if you were wanting to move or work abroad, you should actually do some traveling first and see if you're good at adjusting to other cultures. Because some people just don't. I think people uh, believe that it will be exciting and it will be nonstop glamour and it can be challenging to work in a different country. It can be challenging to work in systems which are different from your own. So I would definitely say that people should consider that. I'd definitely say that people should only come if they are prepared to really immerse themselves in a culture. Uh, there are a lot of people who come to other countries and they kind of form their own communities where they don't really connect with people locally. And that makes it much more difficult for them to do really relevant and effective work because they're not learning from the people who they're trying to help. So my big recommendation would be do some actual traveling just for the sake of traveling first and get a flavor for it. And if you really feel like you're ready to dive into another culture, go for it because there's definitely places where you can bring your skills and really benefit the area. I think that's amazing. I think if you get that opportunity, why not take it or take the plunge? There is one thing though, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about like white saviors when they go abroad. I think Rory Stewart, who did like a little walk uh, around, I can't remember which country now, I think Afghanistan um, was accused of that. And I think a few others have. Is there a danger if you don't immerse yourself properly in the culture that you've just, you, you do have that label as a white savior rather than actually doing some proper work to help people. That's a really good point, Ben. I think that even raising the topic of the white saviour is really important. It's an important discussion to have. It's definitely the case that if people come without getting to know the culture, without getting to know local people and what their needs are and what their real requirements are, then they are just going to impose their idea of what a better society is. And that really is white saviour work. And if you're coming here primarily in order to get pictures on social media of you doing wonderful work and showing people back home how amazing you are, then 
you have to kind of question whether you're doing it for the right reasons. That said, I don't think that the fear of being called a white saviour should prevent people from travelling abroad if they have particular skills which can really help. One thing I would say to anybody considering it is to make sure that your skills really are needed and that they aren't skills which local people can provide. Make sure you work for a reputable organisation. Make sure that you're not paying to work for that organisation because then, then there's a very good chance that, in fact, it's not your work which is benefiting, it's simply your money which is benefiting. And if you do those things, then I think you can make a big contribution. But do immerse yourself in the culture while you're here and make sure that you're always listening to people and what they really need and not what you think that they need. Yeah, that's really, really great advice because it is such an important topic. And I think it's just so vital that, you know, you're conscious of that. And also essentially authenticity as well, being authentic, going into what you're doing and showing up authentically and, you know, immersing yourself in that culture, like you said. When you do come to another country and do your work, it's really important that you do it in collaboration at every stage with the people from that country. If you don't, the chances of you just misunderstanding the culture, misunderstanding what the needs are, are very high. For example, I worked on a big project around domestic violence with an NGO called This Life Cambodia. And we did a big project which was all about teaching Cambodian men that it was more honourable not to indulge in domestic abuse. But all of the creative idea from that came from my colleagues who were Cambodian and who understood the culture. So it was called the Honourable Warrior Campaign because there's a local proverb, which is that the blood of Cambodians is the blood of honourable warriors. So that's a really good example of how it was only by working and listening to colleagues that we were able to do a really effective campaign. It, it seems a bit weird to change track now, but I think as we said at the start, you won Ipsy's Outstanding Freelance Award last year for a lot of your work doing in Cambodia and elsewhere. What was the impact of the awards and other awards in your career? Has it sort of highlighted the work you've been doing with these campaigns? Has it made you get more work? What's it actually done to you? I was really delighted to get the Ipsy Awards. i really thrilled. A friend of mine nominated me and I... Couldn't believe when I shortlisted and went through a very nerve-wracking interview. Um, it was quite a vigorous process. And I was very, very sad when I couldn't be there on the day to actually collect it because I was still in Cambodia. It was announced at about three o'clock in the morning and I was actually jumping around <laughs> in my living room with excitement, probably waking up my downstairs neighbour. <laughs> the reason it helped a lot was partly because it helped me to um, shine a bit of a spotlight on some of the projects which I was really passionate about particularly a project I was working on with Far Punler Selpak, which was the NGO I mentioned earlier. But also I knew that winning the award was likely to make it easier for me to continue doing what I was doing, which was balancing large paid contracts with larger NGOs and organisations, but still have the freedom to work with smaller organisations. And that's exactly what has happened. There's no doubt about it that having the award, which is now at the top of my Upwork page and very, very, very unsubtly broadcast on my own website, boxclevercreative.com, it's definitely helped to bring in more business. I've had more 
inquiries and done more work over the last year than at any point in my life, I think. And it's had an incredibly positive effect. What would you say to those freelancers that are wary about paying fees for award entries? Do you think it's worth it? Some awards are very credible and some are not. There are certainly some awards where you can pay an entry and I think it almost automatically gets you recognition, but along with another thousand organisations and others which are much more rigorous. I think that if there is an entry fee for a very credible award, then that can actually be a really good investment. It is a really good way of showing that you're not just offering good quality work, but that work has been vetted by experts and professionals and that they backed it up. So I don't think there's anything wrong at all with an award fee, but just do make sure that it is a credible award and that they do have rigour in their process. For those listeners that, by the way, are wondering if uh, Ipsy's awards are paid or free, then they should know that it's all free. And I think we're going to have a link to the awards in the show notes. So anyone who wants to follow Jamie's example can next year or then get a friend also to apply as well. Although I do think that there are some awards bodies which are reputable and worth the awards fee, I do think that when you see one which isn't requesting an awards fee and which clearly is just focused on highlighting positive work, that for me does have a bit of extra credibility and a bit it's a bit more attractive. There is definitely an awards industry and that the those awards which stand outside of that industry and which are there really to champion good work, there's something a bit special about them, which is why um, this one is definitely a very special award for me. So Jamie, as an award-winning freelancer yourself, do you have any top tips for any of our listeners that might be thinking about it and considering entering themselves for an award? If you're about to write your first ever award entry, I'd say that the first step is to really familiarise yourself with what the requirements are. I think a lot of people don't spend enough time thinking about what the organisation is looking for, what qualities it thinks are important. And then you really do need to provide evidence. There'll be a lot of people who can say that they're doing great work, but you do need to show that it's true. And that can be statistical evidence, whether that's social media reach, or it could be simple income for your business, or it could be a number of new contracts. Another kind of evidence is feedback. Do court your clients and ask them to provide positive feedback on what you're doing to explain why you're adding value and then use that shamelessly in an award entry. And just think about structure. An award entry is it's, it's a story. So to tell a story about yourself. How did you come to be a freelancer? Why is this the right path for you? What are the challenges you faced? How have you overcome them? And what are you doing now which is different from anybody else? And if you can tell that story well, and you've been doing great work, you've got a good chance. You may well be surprised at what happened. Fab. Love that. (laughs) Yeah, that's what we love to hear. (laughs) (laughs) If you had to pick something that you found really inspiring throughout your freelancing career, what would it be and why? I think one of the things which has really inspired me as a freelancer, particularly in my line of work, which is communications and writing and creativity, is just the power of a good idea. And it can be a little bit frightening, that power, actually. I remember I was talking to my client, who I've mentioned a few times, 
Carpenters are back and they do arts entertainment and creativity. And they were trying to think of a way to fundraise because all of their circus shows closed down. They were discussing the idea of doing a gala. And I suggested the idea of maybe we could try and break a Guinness World Record. And my idea was really low-key. I, I, I mean, I remember saying on the phone, this doesn't have to be a full circus for 24 hours. We can just do a circus for one hour. And then the rest of the time, we'll just have a couple of people juggling on stage and we'll just fill in the time. Fast forward a year and I travelled to Battenbong to go and see how it's going and to be there for the day of the 24-hour circus. And they put on 32 full shows over 24 hours. So it was just this incredible experience where it was enormous, all the frills, all of the acrobatics, circus shows. And it was just incredible to see how a small idea had become this huge thing and this exciting event which galvanised thousands of people to come. And the idea had been taken away from me by that point. It had just, my small idea had become something much bigger, which also kind of goes back to what I said earlier about being respectful of the culture and of letting other people go with whatever ideas you might have and then make them their own. I think that's a really um, sort of inspiring, positive note to end on. I think sometimes freelancers think that their work is a circus, so it's good to know that, <laughs> you know, so you actually made a circus. So yeah, thank you, Jamie. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you very much indeed. That's it for this week's episode. You'll be able to find information on freelancing in the show notes below and on the Freelance Corner website. You'll also be able to find information on the Ipsy Freelance Awards on the Ipsy website as well. Do you have a question about freelancing that you want us to put to an expert? Drop us an email at content at freelancecorner.co.uk. We'd love to hear your queries. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you follow us so you don't miss out on our next episode. You can find us on all major platforms and just let us know what we should quiz an expert on next time.